If you would please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 17. As we continue this morning in John chapter 17, our Lord's high priestly prayer. This morning, uh, specifically, we'll be looking at verses 11 through 26 of Jesus' high priestly prayer. But in order to, to see the, in, the entire prayer, let's, let's begin reading the beginning of the chapter and we'll read all the way through to verse 26. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Jesus spoke these things and lifting up his eyes to heaven. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them, and they received them. And truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, 
so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, last week, as we began working through this uh, deep and wonderful prayer of our Lord Jesus, we saw in verses 1 through 10 the, the deity and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. We saw that He is truly God, that He's been given authority over all flesh. We also saw the grace of Christ toward His people, that He valued their discipleship. He could say of them that they had kept the Father's word. He could say of them that He had been glorified in them. And now as we come this morning to verses 11 through 26, we see the actual requests which Christ makes for his people. And basically there are four main requests here that he makes for them. He asks uh, first that they would be kept, and two things under that, that they would be kept in the Father's name, verse 11, that they be kept from the evil one, verse 15. So he asks that they would be kept. He asks also that they would be sanctified, Verse 17, he asks that they would be one. You see this theme of unity, verse 11, verse 21, verse 23. And then in verse 24, he expresses his desire that his people would be with him and see his glory. And so as we approach verses 11 through 26 this morning, we'll be focusing especially on Christ's petitions for his disciples in these regards, that they would be kept that they would be sanctified, that they would be united, and that they would be with him and see his glory. And so we'll be, we'll be looking at, at those petitions, and then, then at the end we'll, we'll try to, to circle around and, and draw out some, some more application uh, in some of those regards. And so we have the request that they would be kept, that they would be sanctified, that they would be united, and then that they would be with him and see his glory. So first, verse 11, his prayer is that the Father would keep them. He says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. Now, as Jesus points out in the prayer in verse 12, he said that while he was on earth, he had been doing this very thing. He had guarded the disciples while he was with them. He had been keeping them in the Father's name. He'd been keeping them, as it were, in God. He was, in other words, sustaining them, holding on to them, not allowing their doubt to triumph over their faith, not allowing their sins to gain ultimate mastery over them, and so on. He was keeping them in God, keeping them faithful to the revelation of the Father that was manifested in his own life and ministry. He was keeping them in God. But from this point on, things were going to be different. In view of the events that were coming, Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, yet they are in the world, and I come to you. Christ was no longer going to be physically present with them to help them, and so he asks the Father to keep them in his name. And as we know at Pentecost, this prayer was answered by the gift of the Holy Spirit. God keeps his people by the working of the Holy Spirit. And in this request which Christ makes for his people, that the Father would keep them in his name, don't miss the purpose for 
which Christ asked this. He says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. The purpose for the keeping is that they may be one, that these followers of Christ may be united amongst themselves, not divided or disputing amongst themselves. And the purpose of the unity, as we find later on, verse 21 and verse 23, is so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son. Now, Lord willing, we'll speak more of this unity later on. But for now, don't miss the fact that when the Son asks the Father to keep the disciples, there's a purpose in it. The purpose is that they may be one. And there's a purpose in his petition that they would be one, namely the purpose of witness, that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and has loved his people even as he loved his Son. The unity of Christ's disciples is for the purpose of, of witness, the, the testimony to the world. They may know that the Father has sent his Son into the world. Now on this, this note that the disciples would be kept, we should pay attention to what Jesus says in verse 12. He says that he has guarded the disciples and not one of them has perished but the son of perdition so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. This is obviously in reference to Judas Iscariot who at that very moment historically was somewhere in the process of betraying Jesus. But willing we'll see that next week in, verse, or in chapter 18 here of the Gospel of John. Jesus refers to him as the son of perdition. This is a, a Hebrew expression denoting someone who is who's ruined or devoted to destruction. The case of Judas is said to fulfill the scripture, in which case Christ is referring to the Old Testament prophecies regarding the one who would betray him, the one who shares my bread, he has lifted up his heel against me. Think of prophecy in Psalm 41.9 or prophecy in Psalm 109 verse 8. Judas here was not forced into his sin. Judas was doing what he wanted to do in betraying Jesus. We can't see into the heart of Judas and uh, the four gospel writers don't give us all of the motivations that were motivating Judas to do this. But nevertheless, suffice it to say, no one was twisting his arm into doing what he was doing. And we must also conclude that our Lord did not fail in regard to to Judas. It wasn't the case somehow that Jesus was successful in keeping the other 11, but somehow Judas had slipped through his fingers, slipped through the cracks, slipped into perdition. This wasn't the case at all. All that the Father had given to Christ will come to him, and those who truly come will never be cast out. The sheep of Jesus will never perish, and therefore Judas was not one of those sheep, but was a hypocrite instead. Again, think back to, to John chapter 6. Jesus said, have I not chosen you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Jesus had chosen these twelve disciples, knowing full well which one would betray him, which one did not have faith, which one was not regenerate, which one was a hypocrite. And so he says, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them has perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Now, beginning in verse 13, we find that Christ has been speaking these things so that the disciples may have his joy within themselves, and his, his joy made full in them. The, these things of which Christ says he has spoken these things may perhaps be in reference to what he has prayed in this prayer, or may even extend back into the, some of the preceding chapters 
of uh, the Gospel of John, this, this upper room discourse. Either way, Christ is concerned for these men whom he was leaving behind in the world, and he's concerned that they will have his joy made full in them. And as he goes on to make clear in the next couple of verses there, position in the world was going to be such that it was not particularly advantageous to them. All of that notwithstanding, he wants them to have joy. And they can have joy, even though the world hates them, even though the world is in opposition against them. They can have joy because they have eternal life by knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent and because they know how to abide in Christ's love by keeping his commandments as they rely on his strength, as they draw from him as the branch draws from the vine. They have the sure and certain knowledge that Christ is concerned about them. They know the gentle and loving instruction that Christ has given to them. They know this prayer that he has prayed on their behalf. In other words, their biggest problems have all been dealt with by Christ. They have eternal life. They have their sins forgiven. They have him as their loving Savior to shepherd them. And this should sustain them and give them joy even in the midst of a hostile world. And by the way, this ought to sustain you and give you joy in the midst of a hostile world as well. We'll talk about being in the world and not of the world here in a moment. But we need to remember that Christ has come and has given us salvation, and this salvation should fill us with joy, and this joy then should sustain us, even when circumstances are against us. We read about the hostile world immediately in what follows when Jesus says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And then down in verse 18, he says, As you sent me into the world, I have also sent them into the world. Now here we have in a few words a brief summary of the relationship that exists between Christ's disciples and the world. The disciples were originally both in the world and of the world. But then Jesus came to them, gave them the word of the Father, and they ceased being in the world. If you look up in verse 6, Jesus had already said in prayer, I have manifested your name to them, to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They were once part of the world, but God the Father gave them to Christ out of the world. Christ had given them the words of the Father. They received those words and they kept them. And this is why the world hates them, because they had received and kept the words of the Father, which were revealed through Christ. And now Christ's disciples are no longer of the world, just as Christ himself is not of the world. Disciples had been part of the world, but no longer so. The result was that they had accepted the words of Christ, and now they were different men. They still lived in the world physically, but were no longer connected with the world spiritually. That's what happened when they received the word of God given by Christ. They gained new citizenship. Spiritually speaking, they had left their earthly citizenship behind them, their worldly citizenship, and they had gained a heavenly citizenship. And the world could not stand it. 
They felt that these men were traitors. And we know the results of this hatred. Just read the rest of the, the New Testament and the subsequent history of the church. We see it all laid out very clearly. The world has hated them. You find it very clearly in the book of Acts. It doesn't matter whether one was a worldly Jew or a worldly Gentile. They hated the disciples of Jesus, whether those disciples were Jewish or were Gentiles. The Jews were upset because at least many of them had already made up their mind that they were going to reject Jesus as the Messiah. The Gentiles were upset for various reasons, sometimes perhaps because they were men proclaiming that there was another God other than Artemis of the Ephesians or whatever town they happened to be in. Sometimes people were upset because they saw a rivalry and allegiance between King Jesus and King Caesar. The world hates the disciples of Jesus, and so it was not going to be an easy road for them. Jesus, as we've already seen, has made this abundantly clear, especially chapters 15 and 16. Things are not going to be easy for the disciples. But notice what Jesus says here in verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you would take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. Life in the world is going to be tough, but Jesus says, got to stay here for now. He asks the Father to keep his people from the evil one. And then on top of that, look in verse 18. Jesus said he sent them into the world, even as the Father had sent him into the world. And so, quite far from asking that they be taken up out of the world, he says, I'm actually sending them into the world. That's where their mission lies. It's in the world. So his petition for them while they're in the world is that they would be kept from the evil one. Given what we're told in 1 John 5.19, that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, it's no wonder that Christ would pray for his people in this way. Christ referred to the evil one in chapter 12, verse 31 of John as the ruler of this world. And so Christ's plans for his disciples not only involves them remaining in and being sent into a hostile world, it also includes them operating within a sphere where they're going to face the attacks of the devil. This is Christian's existence in the world. One early Christian writer, probably from the second century, put it this way, describing Christians on earth. He said, they dwell in their own countries simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet endure all things as if foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks. Yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. Now those words may one day be just as applicable in our own country as they were in the Roman Empire in the second century. Christians are hated by the world, yet they are sustained within it. That's why we historically have called the church on earth, the church this side of glory, the church militant. It is because we're in a fight. 
because the world hates us and the devil does what he can do to tempt us or to thwart us, we have to be ready and prepared up front for the fight. And Christ's prayer for his people is that they be kept from the evil one. That's the good news for us in the midst of the fight because our safety lies not in being kept away from every bad thing that may happen to us in the world. Our safety doesn't even lie in our own ability to sustain ourselves in the fight. But rather, instead, our safety consists in being kept safe in God. Though the hatred of the world comes upon us, though temptation comes to us, though the wiles of the devil seek to obstruct us, though all kinds of bad things may happen to us, nevertheless, our safety lies not in being taken out of the world. That'll be a great blessing when God calls us home to him. But nevertheless, our safety lies in being kept in God's name, in being kept by God and strengthened by him to resist the evil one. And this is a prayer which God answers for all who truly come to Christ. We find in 1 Peter 1.5 that we are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That is, 1 Peter 1.5 is in a way an answer to Christ's prayer here in John 17, that we're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Christ prays that his disciples would be kept. Next he prays in verse 17 that they would be sanctified. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. To understand What Jesus is saying here, we need to keep in mind immediately what follows in verses 18 and 19, where he says, As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, speaking broadly, when someone is sanctified or made holy, they are they're set apart. This is what we might call sanctification at the, the broadest level. Now, we most often think of the word sanctify as signifying a believer's gradual growth in holiness as they put to death the, the deeds of the flesh and as they obey God with greater regularity and consistency as they're empowered in those things by the Holy Spirit. And certainly, sanctification can certainly mean that, but more broadly, it means being set apart in some way. And so here it's Christ's desire that these disciples would be set apart for the work which God has given them to do. And this is why Christ follows up this prayer for their sanctification by stating that he has sent them into the world. He asks that they be sanctified by the truth, God's word is truth, and that he's sending them into the world. They're set apart, as it were, for the mission which God has given them. And then Jesus says of himself in verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Now, of course, when Jesus is talking about himself being sanctified, it's very clear that he has no sins which he needs to mortify or put to death. It's very clear that Jesus uh, does not grow in obedience. He has obeyed God perfectly throughout his entire life. What Jesus is talking about here by his sanctification is that he himself is set apart to do the Father's will. He sets himself apart to become our great high priest, our once-for-all sacrifice. It is in this way that, that Christ sanctifies himself 
for their sakes, for the sake of his disciples, so that they in turn may also be sanctified in the truth. And so Christ sets himself apart so that his disciples may be set apart. And notice back in verse 17 how this sanctification was to take place. Christ's request to the Father was that they be sanctified in the truth. Your word is truth. And that is to say that the the way in which the disciples were set apart for God's service is learning God's word and conforming themselves to it because God's word is the source of truth. And certainly, as that process plays out, as they, as they learn the word of God and grow in God's truth, as that process works itself out, the, uh, as the Holy Spirit is guiding them into all truth, then in their case, that certainly is going to mean putting to death the misdeeds of the body, growing in holiness, growing in their obedience to the Lord as time goes by. In other words, we could, we could put it like this, that their sanctification in the broad sense, being set apart to the Lord for the mission which he has for them, certainly does include their sanctification in the more narrow sense, their increasing holiness and obedience, sinning less, growing progressively more holy as they are conformed to the image of Christ over time. And... As we've seen in the text here, this sanctification is made possible because Christ has sanctified himself. Christ sanctified himself for their sakes. And he had said back in chapter 10, verse 36, that the Father had sanctified him and sent him into the world. God the Father had set Christ apart for the work which he was to do and had sent him into the world. And Christ had sanctified himself in that he voluntarily accepted this charge from the Father and consented to it, that he willingly came into the world for us, willingly laid down his life for our salvation, willingly took it up again in the resurrection. It is Christ who makes our sanctification possible because he sanctified himself for us. And it is the word of God which is the agent of this sanctification. These men are sanctified in the truth, which is revealed to them and to us in the word of God. And then in verse 20, Jesus broadens his prayer beyond the 11 disciples to all believers, to those who would believe in him through the word of the apostles. And his prayer is this this third request, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. And again, the purpose of the unity is so that the world may believe that the Father has sent the Son. Looking down into verse 22, we find that Christ has made provision for this unity in that he has given them the glory which the Father has given to him so that his followers might be one, just as he and the Father are one. And... We find that same purpose for this desired unity there in verse 23. That they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Christ's prayer is that his people be united as a testimony to the world that that the world might know that the Father has sent the Son and that they might know that the Father has set his love on his people even as he had loved his only begotten son. This is what Christ is requesting in this prayer. 
And along similar lines, he had said to the disciples back in chapter 13, verse 35, that by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Love and unity certainly go hand in hand together. And thus the unity and the love between the fellow members of the body of Christ should be a powerful testimony to the truth of the gospel to the world. According to Jesus' words in verse 23, this unity testifies not only of the reality that the Father had sent the Son, but also to the reality that the Father has loved his people even as he has loved his Son. It testifies that the people of God are loved by God. So our love for one another testifies that we are the disciples of Jesus, and our unity with fellow Christians testifies to the world that God has loved us. And then Christ concludes his prayer in verses 24 through 26 with his fourth petition, that his people would be with him where he is, so that they may see the glory which the Father has given to him. Even though the world doesn't know the Father, yet the Son does know him. And Christ had made known the name of the Father to his disciples. He has revealed the Father to them. He's shown them the Father's character, the Father's attributes, the Father's power and glory. Christ has done this, he says, and he will continue to do it. He will continue to make the Father known so that the love with which the Father has loved the Son may be in them and that Christ himself may be in them. And this work of Christ continues by means of the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit teaches us the truths of God's word, his his love for us and what Christ has done for us, and thus the, the Holy Spirit continues revealing God's character, God's attributes, and his truth to us. This is how the Father is made known. This is how men and women receive eternal life, because this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. Christ has made the name of the Father known and has continued to make it known. Thank God that he has. Now, having seen these these four petitions that Christ prays for his people, that they be kept, that they be sanctified, that they be unified, and that they would be with him where he is to see his glory, let me ask you a few questions in regard to how it's going. So, first question is this. How's it going being in the world and not of the world? That's kind of a common Christian jargon, and this, John 17, is is where this derives from. The Christian is supposed to be in the world, and not of the world. This is what Jesus prays for his people. He himself is not of the world, even as his people are not of the world, and yet he prays that they not be taken out of the world, but kept from the evil one while they are in the world. And he sends them on mission into the world. And so, if you're here this morning as a Christian, you are in the world, and not of the world. And so, how's this going? How's this working out for you? It can be kind of an awkward reality sometimes, can't it? Why is it awkward? Well, there are a number of reasons, aren't there? The world hates us. That's a given. We've seen this theme over and over again here in this this upper room discourse. We, We see it again here in the high priestly prayer, chapter 17. 
if we're going to follow Christ, the world's going to hate us, and most of us probably don't like being hated. We would prefer to be loved. Kind of awkward and uneasy when you're being hated. Another reason why being in the world and not of the world is awkward is that the flesh within us still sometimes resonates with the world. There's a part of us that would like to be not only in the world, but of the world. Haven't you ever been tempted to just take the life of faith in Christ and obedience to him and just check it over your shoulder and say, well, I'm going to live it up here. I've certainly been tempted in that regard. And then on top of that, we have the evil one, the devil, tempting us. He will tell you every lie that your flesh wants to hear about the pleasures of the world, and he will seek to entice you by it. Hence, we have Christ's prayer that his disciples would be kept from the evil one. And so being in the world and not of the world is an awkward existence. And the temptations to compromise the, the Christian stance in the world can come in at least one of two directions. I'm not claiming to be exhaustive in our treatment of this topic this morning. But nevertheless, I think the temptation to compromise can come in one of two directions. We can be tempted on the one hand to become worldly, to give up our distinctiveness as the followers of Christ in the world. In other words, tempted to compromise. It is the temptation to capitulate to the world, go along with them, to accept their terms, uh, to go along with them on whatever the hot-button issues of the day are, the issues that will get you into hot water with the world, with your non-Christian family, non-Christian friends, non-Christian co-workers, non-Christian bosses, non-Christian neighbors, etc. And the way this compromise works, or at least the way that it can work, is something like this. We start by asking the question, bad question, question that the serpent posed to Eve in the garden. Indeed, has God said, has God said, for instance, that a man can't become a woman? Has God said, a man can't marry a man? And so on. And indeed, sure enough, if you're asking that question, you start looking in the Bible, you're not going to find the Bible verse that says verbatim, thus says the Lord, a man cannot become a woman. That verse is not in the Bible. You're not going to find the verse that says a man cannot marry a man, a woman cannot marry a woman. You're, you're not going to find those verses. Those, those verses are not in the Bible in that way. And you'll hear, you'll hear the voices saying, well, Jesus never mentioned homosexuality. And therefore giving the implication, well, this surely can't be that big of a deal if Jesus never mentioned it. You see, this is the way people can begin to handle the word of God when the pressure to conform to the world becomes very strong. And so what, what can be said in response to these things? Well, it's certainly true that in the words of Jesus that are preserved for us in the four Gospels, he never explicitly mentioned homosexuality. In that sense, he never condemned it by name. But, as far as I can tell, there are several other things that he never condemned by name either, specifically as a sin. As far as I can tell, he never mentioned rape as a sin. As far as I can tell, he never mentioned the abuse of children as a sin. Are we to conclude, then, 
that Jesus is fine with rape and homosexuality and the abuse of children simply because we do not see him saying anything explicitly about those things in his words as recorded in the Gospels. Of course not. I hope you can see the absurdity of such an exercise. People who do such things are simply playing games with God's holy word and seeking to justify evil, seeking to grease the wheels so that they can slide along with the world. Truth of the matter is, Jesus didn't have to reiterate every sinful practice which was already condemned in the Old Testament. He didn't have to, because he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. So he would say in Matthew 5.19, Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so the Old Testament law then can fill you in on how our Lord views homosexuality and rape and a whole host of things. Those issues belong to the moral law, which abides and continues and therefore is binding on all people. And then as to the question about a man becoming a woman, a woman becoming a man, again, you're not going to find a verse that treats the subject exactly in those terms, but you are going to find a text like Genesis 127. Male and female, he created them. God is the one who creates us, and therefore he's in charge of what chromosomes we are given in the womb. You are going to find a text like Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear a man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. I think that speaks to Drag Queen Story Hour clear enough. You see what I mean. Even when the scripture may not frame the sin or the issue quite in the same words, quite in the same terminology that the culture does, scripture is clear enough about the sinfulness of these things. Therefore, we may well apply the words of Paul in Ephesians 5, 6 to these discussions and say along with the apostle, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Asking the question, did God say, and pretending that he didn't say when he actually did, is simply the high road to abandoning the gospel and to everything that we as Christians hold dear. Our uh, dear brother, my predecessor, Shane Walker, once said, some slopes really are slippery. And these are some of them. This temptation, this is the temptation to be in the world and of the world. But if you and I succumb to this and conform ourselves to the world, we become what Jesus referred to as salt that has lost its saltiness, which is good for nothing, but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Matthew 5.13. So that's one temptation. The other temptation may not be so strong, but I think, I think it's probably out there when these discussions are being had. The other temptation is to withdraw from the world. This is the temptation that comes when someone recognizes clearly the danger in the world and recognizes the, the dangers inherent in the temptation to compromise with the world. And they say, ah, we can't compromise with the world. And so how are we to avoid the compromise that confronts us? Well, let's get as far away from the world as we can. Now, obviously, such a person can't actually leave the world until they die. But nevertheless, they can seek to avoid the world as much as they can while still being physically on earth. Now, roughly speaking, historically speaking, this has been the tendency of monasticism. Monks, nuns, isolationism, so on. 
And on the one hand, this may seem attractive and just say, well, let's gather all the Christians, form our own separate society, and we'll leave the world to their own devices and watch them plummet into chaos and destruction. But if we act in that way, it might sound appealing, but if we act that way, we're neglecting what Jesus says about the mission of his disciples in verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. We act in this isolationist tendency. We're failing in our witness. How will the world see and hear unless they see and hear from us? The problem, or another problem, with the monastic mentality is that we ourselves are full of sin, and wherever we go, there we are. This is what Basil the Great in the ancient church found to be the case when he retreated to the solitude of the wilderness and he wrote in a letter, he said, I've well forsaken my residence in the city as a source of a thousand evils, but I've not been able to forsake myself. I'm like a man who, accustomed to the sea, unaccustomed to the sea, becomes seasick, gets out of the large ship because it rocks the moor into a small skiff, but still even there keeps the dizziness the nausea, so it is with me. For while I carry about with me the passions which dwell in me, I am everywhere tormented with the same restlessness, so that I really get not much help from this solitude. So Basil the Great saw that the problem was him. He could get away from some of the tempting and alluring enticements of the city, but he knew that he was still a sinner, and wherever he went, he had his own evil heart there with him as well. And so let me ask you, if you're a Christian this morning, how's it going being in the world and yet not of the world? Some of us are probably tempted toward worldliness in one way or another, while others of us may struggle with a tendency toward isolation and withdrawal. I think whatever your tendency is, recognize it and repent of any any sins, any sinful attitudes that you may have had in this regard and trust the grace of God and draw your strength from Christ by the Holy Spirit, and move forward. We can trust Christ to be merciful. We can let the past be the past, whether our past is worldliness or our path is a failure, our past is a failure to go out into the world. We repent, we trust Christ, and we move forward. We can do that. We can forget what's behind and press forward toward what lies ahead. Now, it's possible, it may be, that some of you are here this morning and you are simply in the world and of the world. Absolutely. You know it. You don't belong to Christ. He's not your Savior. You have not submitted yourself to Him. And if that describes you this morning, then I call upon you to think seriously about who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what Jesus has done for His people. Our Lord Jesus is the Son of God who came into the world and died on the cross for sinners so as to give them eternal life. And this eternal life is found by trusting in Him, turning away from sins, and walking with him. Now compare that, what Christ has done for his people, with what the world has done for you, if you love the world so much. Now maybe the world may give you riches, honors, pleasures, fame, and so on. It might give you some of those things, maybe not. But even under the best case scenario, all that the world gives you is going to be fading, it's going to be fleeting. Your money will run out or you'll die before you can spend it all. If you're unrestrained in seeking pleasure, it will destroy you in one way or another. 
There's more to life than that. Why would you waste your life chasing after this world which will only elude you like you're jumping after a rainbow or something or drop you when it's convenient? At the end of the day, you're going to have to face the judgment seat of God for everything that you've done. Why would you seek that kind of a life? A life which ends not only in disappointment, but in the wrath of God as well. Our Lord Jesus has come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And this is found in turning away from your sins and trusting in Christ. If you have more questions about that, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian whom you know. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to have eternal life by knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And it may be that some of you this morning are, by God's grace, doing a reasonably good job at being faithful in being in the world and not of the world. Praise God if that is the case in your life and stay faithful doing what you're doing. And wherever you find yourself doing well or not doing so well, recognize this, that living in the world as a Christian is going to be awkward. You'll be hated, misunderstood, tempted to compromise in one way or the other. This is just par for the course. It's not easy, it gets messy, but this is how the kingdom of God advances in the world. And it's also how the kingdom of God advances in, within our own hearts as God uses the heartaches and hardships of living for him in a fallen world to draw us closer and closer to himself and conform us to the image of Christ. The older, the older we get and the more we experience, we learn the truth of what the hymn writer said, that earth's, earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away. And so, friend, keep going. We're in the world and of the world for now. Someday we will not, no longer be in this world, but we'll be in the world to come with our Lord forever. And this brings us then to our second question of how's it going. How's it going with being sanctified in the truth? Christ's prayer was that his disciples be sanctified in the truth and that God's word is truth. Now, in addition to what we've already considered about Christ's words, notice that here Christ's word, sanctify, is a prayer request to God, not a command given to the disciples. Now there's no doubt that we have a role to play in our process of sanctification. There are other places in Scripture that speak to that, such as 1 Peter 1.15, like the Holy One who called you, so be holy yourselves in all your behavior. And stay tuned for tonight, Leviticus 11. We'll talk a little bit more, uh, Lord willing, about, uh, about this issue of holiness. But here, Christ is not commanding the disciples, not commanding us. Instead, he is specifically asking the Father to set these 11 disciples apart for the service that they were to perform in the world. And the means by which that sanctification was to occur was by the truth, which is the word of God. As we've considered before, this setting apart for service certainly does include sanctification in the narrow sense, our own growth in holiness. It would make no sense at all to suppose that Christ's people were somehow to be set apart by means of the word of God for mission, the mission of proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the world, and that their personal holiness would not be involved in that in any way. And so with this in mind, we need to recognize here on the basis of John 17 that our sanctification is not simply something that we bring about 
by our own efforts. We have a role to play. We strive to put to death our sins by the aid of the Holy Spirit. But we need to recognize that also involved in sanctification is the divine element, that God himself sanctifies us and sets us apart. And we need to maintain the balance of both. Baptist Catechism is helpful when it defines sanctification by saying sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. And you you can hear in that definition that they give there the both parts of it. That on the one hand we are it's it's the work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, recreated in Christ, made new. And as part of that we are then enabled to die more and more to sin and to live more and more unto righteousness. And so we should allow this prayer of Christ in John 17 to be a great encouragement and comfort to us today in the Christian life because the good news is that God is the one who sanctifies us and it's his working within us by the Holy Spirit that enables us to put to death our sins. And so we need to be comforted and encouraged and also we need to recognize here on the basis of what Jesus prays that God works in this by means. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so, in seeking this sanctification which the Lord works within us, we need to make sure that we're submitting ourselves to Scripture, hearing it read, hearing it taught and preached faithfully. We need to turn this prayer of Christ into our own prayer, saying, Father, sanctify me in the truth. Your word is truth. And then we should rejoice that our same Jesus who prayed this prayer for his 11 disciples, ever lives to intercede for us as our great high priest. This is good news. And so, how's the sanctification going? Putting to death misdeeds? Are you drawing your strength from doing that from the Holy Spirit? Are you seeking to do this on your own effort? You need to remember, this is a prayer request here where Christ prays, sanctify them in the truth. And the third question, and we'll be brief here, third question is this. How's it going with Christian unity. How's it going with Christian unity? This is something that obviously Jesus is very concerned about. We've seen more than one place in this prayer that Jesus desires this for his followers, that they be united so that the world may know that the Father has sent the Son and has loved his people. Now, I'll be the first to admit that the subject of Christian unity is one that is fraught with difficulties and is racked by extremes on all sides. And those two main sides are this. Some are willing to throw essential Christian doctrine overboard in order to unite with anyone else who remotely has a friendly attitude toward Jesus. And, uh, and so they say, see, we're, we're united under Jesus, but they don't really believe the same things. They don't really do the same things. They are not both seeking to follow Christ and walk with him. There's, there's really no unity there other than kind of claiming to be under the umbrella of Jesus. And there are others who perhaps are so focused on, on doctrine or some elements of practice so as to become schismatic over every potential issue over which Christians may differ. Now, there was a, there was a group in Scotland in the late 17th or early 
uh, I'm, I'm sorry, late 18th to early 19th centuries called the Sandemanians. And uh, the Sandemanians were, were pretty strict about, uh, about unity and basically said that Christians with any differences at all should not come to the Lord's table together. This is, this is too much. This is too much. And so what should we do about it? I think, for one, we need to recognize that ultimately this prayer will find its fulfillment in the presence of God and of Christ when all of the redeemed will be fully and finally redeemed. We won't sin anymore. We won't misunderstand doctrine anymore. We won't have any bad practical aspects of our faith. We'll be, we'll be united in faith and obedience to the Lord when we are all before the Lord. Full and final unity will be achieved then. And in the meantime, we have to do the best we can by the grace of God. We have to remember that Christian unity is important, that Christ prayed for it, and we have to remember also that Christian unity is a fact. The fact of the matter is, what we find in Ephesians 4, is that there is one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's over all and through all and in all. There's not two bodies of Christ, there's one body of Christ. And the truth is that we actually are already united with all who have repented and believed in Christ. If they're saved and you're saved, you're part of the same body, the body of Christ. And so we need to, to recognize the importance of Christian unity. We need to recognize also the fact of Christian unity. And we have to do our best to promote it, both here in our own local church and with other Christians in the universal church as we have opportunity. We're commanded to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, and we have to exercise charity and grace in our dealings with other Christians. Now, I think here in this fallen world, we have to recognize that organizational unity, all Christians kind of becoming uh, churches of one denomination, if you will, that's not going to happen uh, before the return of Christ. And so I would uh, put forward the advice of J.C. Ryle when he said that you ought to keep the walls of separation as low as possible and shake hands over them as often as you can. And I think that's, uh, that's pretty helpful advice. And I would also put forward the words of Charles Hodge, who once, who once wrote, he said, We love all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. We regard as Christian brethren all who worship, love, and obey him as their God and Savior. And we hope to be united in heaven with all who will unite with us on earth in saying, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins with, in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so we want to, we want to love those who, who love Christ, who trust in him, who obey him. And though we may not be fully united here on earth, we'll hope to be united in heaven with all who will say with us, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And so be encouraged this morning as we've seen these requests which Christ prayed for his people. Christ has done great things for us. He's loved us. He's prayed for us. He has bought us with his own blood. Though we fall short in all of these things which we've considered being in the world and not of the world, in our sanctification, in Christian unity, we fall short in all of these things. But nevertheless, his prayer is effectual for those who are his. All who are his will be kept. 
All who are his will be sanctified. All who are his will be united. And all who are his will be with him and will see his glory. Christ has prayed for us. Christ continues to pray for us. He's able to save forever those who come to God through him. That's all praise and glory to our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ's love for us. We thank you for the way in which Christ has prayed for us here, praying not merely for the 11 apostles, but for, but for all who would believe through their testimony. Lord, we ask that you would help us in these regards in which Christ has prayed for us. We praise you that Christ is still praying for us and that the Holy Spirit is working within us. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we'd be faithful as we walk with you in the world, as we interact with other Christians, as we seek to be sanctified, set apart for your purposes, set apart from sin, from the world. Lord, we ask for your mercy. We ask for your help. And we praise you that this prayer will find its fulfillment in all who belong to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.